G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to Episode 4 of Series 7 of This Week in Startups Australia. Scaling is the hardest task facing the startup entrepreneur. Harder than getting started, harder than getting to an MVP, harder than getting investment. Scaling is hard. But there are any number of startups who have scaled successfully, including a few that have already been on Twista, such as Canva, Envato, Catapult, and Airtasker. What can we learn from their successes in scaling? That's our theme for Series 7. In this episode, we take another look into a technology that everyone assumed would scale quickly, but hasn't. Virtual reality is here, it's powerful, it's cheap, but it hasn't seen the widespread adoption many, myself included, had predicted. So how do you build a business around a technology that hasn't and might never reach scale? To answer that question, we'll speak with the founders of two wildly different virtual reality startups. Each are charting a course through virtual reality and into profitability. Scaling against the tech on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Are you a small business looking to streamline costs on shipping and postage? Simplify and save with SendPro Plus from Pitney Bowes and receive a $200 credit toward your parcel shipping costs. Terms and conditions apply. Visit them online at pitneybowes.com slash au slash twista. This Week in Startups Australia is also proudly sponsored by Launch Sydney. In June 2019, Launch returns to Sydney to host their second festival and they're giving away the first 1,000 tickets for free to founders. Get yours at launchfestivalsydney.com slash founderspass. Let's jump into the Wayback Machine and head all the way back to 1990. Now, at that point, I am obsessed with virtual reality, and I want more than anything else to bring virtual reality to the Macintosh. Now, here's the thing. A Macintosh in 1990 had about one thousandth of the power of today's top-of-the-line Macs. So that's not a lot of grunt to handle all of the hard work rendering interactive three-dimensional worlds. And someone who had been on the show floor at Macworld told me about this amazing piece of software they'd seen called Virtus Walkthrough. Virtus was an architectural visualization package for the Mac. You gave it the blueprints for your property, and it would render them on screen in three dimensions. And then you could navigate around the building, either via keyboard or mouse, in real time. And that's something that shouldn't have been possible. The Mac was woefully underpowered for that kind of high-end visualization, yet somehow it worked beautifully. And Virtus Walkthrough, it flipped a bit in my head, because when I saw it, I knew beyond all doubt that consumer VR was possible without a million-dollar graphic supercomputer. And after that, and after a few false starts and failed startups, 
Uh, that led me to create VRML with my great friend Tony Parisi, and VRML brought those same capabilities to web browsers. So I have an enormous soft spot for architectural visualization, both because of its history and because of its utility. Everyone needs to see a structure before it's built. The design improves for having been seen. Justin Leung understands this. He founded InSpace XR to build the next generation of architectural visualization, tools that leverage off the enormous power and low cost of today's professional VR systems. Justin, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you for having me, Mark. Okay. So what exactly is InSpace XR doing? Yeah. InSpace XR is providing virtual reality technology so people can get inside a building before it's constructed. And what that means is they can better design, better build, and better sell that building, building whether it's an airport, an, an office, a house, an entire city. Okay, so what we have generally is these buildings are designed on computer using CAD programs, AutoCAD, there's a couple of other programs that are used, but AutoCAD is, is, the, is, is the common big one. And so they're basically blueprints, maybe 3D, but they're blueprints. And so what happens is, as part of this is like you have that blueprint and then basically you press a button and bam, you're in virtual reality. How does that actually work? Exactly right. So our signature product, RiverFox, takes AutoCAD, you know, Autodesk products, whether it's a SketchUp, Rhino, Revit, whatever file type you have. You click a button in your CAD software. It's a RiverFox button and it projects into the VR goggles straight away. Once you're inside the VR goggles, you then have access to a range of tools that you can use to analyze and communicate the design. Okay, so in other words, this is almost the way you can do the design review. Rather than staring at the screen and trying to figure out, is that right? Does that look right? How's that going to look? You hit a button it renders it in full virtual reality. You put the headset on, and now I'm actually in my design, but I'm in my design with the tools that I need to be able to annotate my design. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, exactly right. So now you can physically walk through that building. Which I couldn't do in 1990. I need to be clear on that. Which you couldn't do. And and yeah, you've got a, you've got a range of tools, and that's you know, simulating accurate uh, sun, analysis, right? Because for compliance, that's important. Uh, If you want to make marks, you can stamp things up and also leave voice to text notes as well. Mm -hmm. We also have things like a measuring tape, a sectioning tool, all these things that just help you better understand a design. Okay. And can I then start to lay out the space once it's built? Can I say, okay, this is where the desks are going to go, or this is where the furniture, or this is where the doorway, do I have that kind of flexibility as well? Yeah, it brings in any data that's already in the CAD model, and then you can switch to, for example, decide to switch the chairs or the walls off uh, and you know view it in different materials as well, given that the materials are already specified in the CAD model. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I can see how this wall is going to look if it's white or it's black, and I see how that chair looks if it's wood or if it's metal and all of these different things. All right, you have that capability, and presumably that's useful for the, the architect, for the designer, because they can then inspect their designs. Who else benefits from seeing that? Yeah, architects are trained to think in space, mm. and even then they get into VR and they go, oh, huh, I didn't realize you know, this and that and pick up all these things. But what really motivated us was the end buyer. 
you know, that who d- isn't trained, who isn't trained, space. right? Who just who wants to renovate their home or, you know, and, and has to pay for all the rework because, well, they've got two choices. When it's, when it's being built, they can go, that's not what I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. I can spend a lot of money to change that, or I can just live with it for like the next decade, right? Um, on a macro level, $55 billion spent in annual construction rework because because of this problem. Is that just in Australia or is that global? globally? Globally, annually. Okay. Yeah. All right. So $55 billion because people got it wrong. Exactly. And, you know, it's not just the end clients, it's the engineers as well. It's the builders on sites. All of these guys can get alignment on exactly what the building's meant to look like if there's a virtual model of it. Okay, so I think we get the use case. I think we get the product market fit here. We have an architect. They've got the model. They hit the button. But now they need a VR system. And do all of our, all of the architects out there have VR systems? Are they actually out there? Because I thought this was one of the problems. Is in fact, we don't have that many VR systems out there. Yeah, we're seeing the larger multinationals have VR stations set up mm-hmm. where various teams can upload their files, go in and check it out. It's, but it's that room over there where the VR system is. It isn't actually at every architect's desk right now. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, what we're seeing now, you know, what we're really trying to make accessible, uh, we're, we're trying to provide accessibility to the freelance architect, the, you know, two to 10 person shop. Um, and... You know, I think just just the price of hardware, right, falling organically is is going is helping with that already a lot. Mm. Yeah, because you can get the Wix um, Windows Mixed Reality headset for four five hundred dollars, and then another four five hundred for a very competent graphics card, and you're basically you're there, right? Exactly right. And then they can then go and on ch- on charge their VR services and make that money back in you know that their first job pretty quickly. So. I wonder if there's a bit of disconnect here because an architect would not blink at spending $1,000 on a good monitor to look at their work. I mean, you know, if you're a graphic designer, you're going to do it because it has the correct color registration and all of this stuff, right? Because they know they need that. And yet they don't extend that idea to this virtual reality tool that they also need. Do you find that's a bridge that we've yet to cross, that they aren't seeing this as a necessary peripheral but just this kind of cool add-on? Yeah, you get different reactions right often the early adopters the aha moment is when they get when we see a customer we we go give us one of your design files we upload it and within 30 seconds they're standing inside whatever they've been working on for 18 months and they go wow and at that moment they go i want this right i might not need this but i definitely want this that's the best kind of customer. Yeah. That's the shut up and take my money kind of customer. Yeah, exactly right. And that's that's a reaction we usually get. Um, sometimes we have to draw it out a little bit, the ROI, right, to, to, to justify it. Um, but even on an ROI basis, it's it's really easily justifiable, right, if you can charge it onto a project. Well, and because if you're saving, if you're not making a mistake, if your mistake rate goes down on a job, like that shows up on the bottom line immediately, right? Exactly. But it starts before that. You're producing better design concepts in the early stage. You're bringing your consultants and clients in early on. So you're reducing the amount of design iterations. Ah, so all the entire process gets tighter. Yes, because you're not doing six, seven iterations. Yeah. You're doing like one or two longer sessions. Yeah. 
So this is as much about workflow management as it is really about design visualization then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely like productivity. Right, right. Okay, so I think we've got the, the clear use case. Now, how are you approaching this? It sounds like you've got a SaaS model basically set up for this. Is that what it is? So people have a subscription and they can use the service when they have a subscription to it. Yeah, Riverfox is $140 a month for unlimited VR experiences. Okay, all right. So, so you've got a very simple, straightforward pricing model. And if I'm one of these little architecture firms and I don't have any experience in VR, is that going to be a barrier for me or are you going to help me through with that? Well, you know, we've made the import process as simple as one click. Mm-hmm. And then once you're inside, people typically take two or three minutes to pick up. So, you know, I think it's up to us as product builders to make it as dummy proof as possible. So not a lot of training is required. Okay. And in terms of the, the gear, they already, you know, you've got, you've guided them through what gear they need if they didn't have that. Yeah, exactly. So basically just run a compatibility test on what they have already. If they need upgrade, we go, this is what you need. We can get it for you. You can buy it off the shelf. Right. Okay. So you give them the full solution. All right. So now I guess what you're saying is you have a SaaS product, you've identified your market. And so now we're talking about, and that's the theme of series seven, which is the scaling stories. How do you grow your market? What is the total addressable market here? Because I'm assuming that this is being, you're working globally or you're trying to do this product globally, right? Yeah, exactly right. So what is the size of that market globally? It's 3.6 million architects globally Mm. is the market we're focused on at the moment. Australia represents around 2% of that. Which is not inconsiderable. So that's nice. Yeah. Exactly. And then the... The adjacent custom segments are the engineers and the builders as well, mm-hmm. and they have different use cases for it, but are absolutely partly a part of our market as well. Right. Well, and the thing is, is that when construction is actually going on, it tends to be very rapid communication between the architect, the engineer, and the builder. And if they have a better tool for communicating in, then again, it's that comes back to that idea of workflow that you're really compressing the workflow that's going between them. Okay, you have just, and just before you walked in here, you beamed me an article, you have just secured three quarters of a million dollars in seed financing. Congratulations. Thank you. Take me through what it took to be able to convince investors that you were worth investing in and then how you're thinking you're going to be able to turn that money into scaling. Yeah, so, you know, coming from that space, when I was at AMP Ventures, I was fortunate to cover... AR, VR startups, and I went out and saw a lot of cool stuff, which is why I wanted to get into this space in the first place. But very little, you know, very little of what I saw was actually investable. Mm -hmm. And so I knew what investors needed to see was uh, first that virtual reality was the future of architecture and that, you know, took initial amount of traction as well. And uh, the use cases in sales and marketing as well. So, you know, in about our first two or three months, we had secured CBRE, JLL, Macquarie Bank, um, some of the larger names. And I think, you know, that always helps mm. with the traction story. And then we just had to prove that the economics could be profitable and that the business could be scalable. Okay. And you proved that the business is scalable by going by basically starting to grow your customer base, right? 
Exactly right. And then, you know, and then putting the wheels back on the cart as the wheels fall off. Because it, as will happen in every startup, as you scale, the mm. wheels will fall off. And you're like, oh, that's an interesting way for the wheels. And then you put the wheel back on and you'll keep going. All right. So you've, you've managed to convince investors that you're investable. Uh, how did you contact them? I mean, were these existing networks that you contacted or, or did they come to you and say, we want to invest in you? Yeah. So this... So there's a syndicate. Uh, it's, it's led by Investable. It involves Haronga Group and Artesian. Um, we were discovered by Investable when we won the TechSource and uh, OTEC startup pitch competitions. All right, kids, listen to that. If you win a pitch competition, you may in fact get money. So practice your pitches. Absolutely. Um, and oh, actually, Taronga Group actually discovered us when we won the Alibaba startup competition. No. Okay. Um, you know, six months prior to that, so definitely, and and yeah, you know, from then it was sort of just building that relationship and taking the taking them along a journey of three three to six months um, as we're discussing the deal, and and yeah, and we you know we get to a point where they've they've seen enough. Mm. So there was, but it makes it sound like there's a real element of nursing that relationship, that this is not just a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, for the money, but this is a, I'm going to take you on the journey. And because of that journey, you're going to trust me and you're going to want to be able to invest in me. Exactly. Because it's, you know, it's such a personal relationship. You're going to be, you know, operating together on a business. So the chemistry has to be there. But then also, you know, investors always say you invest in lines, not dots, right? Um, you, you've got to show traction over time, um, report and milestones and what's that communication like. Right. And also, can, can they talk to you? Do you listen? Are you responding? You know, those are the things that are intangible that they don't mention, but that they're watching just as intensely. Exactly. All right. What does the future look like for InSpaceXR? If we come back to you in, say, three years, so 36 months, what has scaling done for you? Yeah. So the vision is to have a range of AR and VR products that are used across architecture, engineering, construction for the built environment. Because there are a range of use cases there and timing comes into play. So in three years, we would have extended our range beyond just River Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, we're looking to, move, to establish our first office in, in the US uh, and then the market, the next market after that is likely to be China or mm-hmm. Asia. Mm-hmm. No building going on in China. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that's sort of the broader picture of, of where we want to go. And really what, you know, the company want to be is that, you know, kids born today will say, you know, did you, you know, did you guys really build buildings based off paper? Like, was that a thing? And, you know, and then people say, yeah, until InSpace came along and changed all of that. Justin, thank you so much for joining us in This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure. Are you a small business or small e-tailer looking for better ways to streamline costs and improve efficiency? 
Introducing SendPro Plus from Pitney Bowes, the complete office sending solution that makes it easy for small businesses and e-tailers to consistently choose the right sending option for each parcel or letter. SendPro Plus provides shipping options and prices, prints labels, and tracks parcels. An integrated accurate scale helps assign the correct parcel label or postage. SendPro Plus makes sending simple with automatic rate updates and a shared address book across available carriers. Pitney Bowes brings shipping, mailing, and tracking capabilities to businesses looking to simplify their shipping and mailing while reducing costs. Simplify and save with SendPro Plus today and receive a $200 credit toward your parcel shipping costs. Terms and conditions apply. To learn more, visit pitneybowes.com au slash twista. I'm a great fan of a poem by Robert Burns titled To a Louse. And the last stanza of that poem opens with these words. A woodsome power, a giddy gius, to see ourselves as others see us. It would from many a blunder free us and foolish notion. Now, where we cannot see ourselves through the eyes of others, we end up being blind to the consequential nature of our actions. Okay. That's the problem. How can we see? And this has been one of the great promises of virtual reality this time around, that it might actually operate as an empathy engine and it might help us to walk in others' shoes and perhaps even reveal how we look to others. And that premise, that promise, powers another current generation virtual reality startup Equal Reality. And joining us now on Twista are two of the co-founders of Equal Reality, Rick Martin and Chris Moran. Welcome to This Week in Startups Australia, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. So tell me in brief, what does Equal Reality do? What is the product? What are you making? So Equal Reality, we do, as we say, diversity and inclusion training in virtual reality. So what does that mean in practice? So... Uh, the premise is, like you mentioned, to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. So we build simulations, much like a video game, where you know you can become someone in a virtual environment, look at yourself in a mirror, and experience, based off research, uh, you know, common social interactions where maybe bias is present or discrimination, uh, mm-hmm. and it affects a certain group, you know, the group that you embody, to learn and highlight certain issues within a workplace or within just uh, society in general. So do, do, could you give me a specific example of how that might work? Sure. So we have a public available demo at the moment, and it focuses on two really common topics. One uh, around gender, mm-hmm. uh, so women in the workplace is, is the theme, and one around disability, which is specifically around uh, wheelchair this experience. Mm. And... You go into these experiences, I'll, I'll tell you about the user journey, and you know, put your headset on, uh, you start the experience, and you look at yourself in a mirror. And it goes through this uh, embodiment process, which is based off a lot of the research for, you know, coming out of Stanford and Barcelona, um, where you, it, you know, it, it comes off uh, the process of, it, the original research was where you have a, uh, your arm and you hide it behind a 
a wall and you have like a plastic hand and eventually your mind starts to take on this plastic hand as your own if you asynchronously for example brush it with a feather and then someone hits it with a hammer you know you might have seen some of those videos on um, YouTube but this sort of pr uh, principle uh, where you take on that uh, representation of your hand as your own uh, happens in virtual reality and a lot of research comes out of this so we use that principle of looking yourself in a mirror with six degrees of freedom virtual reality which is important because um, it's about really so you're moving around a space fully embodied yeah. in the space as someone else as someone else and it's and it's really important that mirror piece because it starts you know the schema of the mind they say you know starts taking on that representation as yourself on the premise that the mirror uh, frames you for these scenarios we take you through. Uh, these, these scenarios are based off research. Uh, for example, let's focus on women in the workplace. We interview a plethora of, or just a lot of different groups around certain common biases and stories that people want to tell. People want others to know. Uh, you know, it's based off the principle and one of the reasons we got into this was to show, don't tell. Um, and so what can we highlight through these experiences? So we would take you from the embodiment sort of scene, which is the mirror, into now a scenario where you, for example, are in a, in our experience, in a meeting and you see all different types of bias and some are, you know, very obvious and maybe just straight up discrimination and some are maybe more subtle such as idea poaching where you've come up with an idea and someone takes it right, from right. That, that classic example where a woman will say something in a meeting and it will be completely ignored until it comes out of a man's mouth that's right that's right and and then we after that we actually well during this experience we actually for this this experience i'm talking about we get you to pull the trigger when you recognize these things mm -hmm. it's based off the principle of making what's unconscious conscious that awareness to change behavior and so at the end, we actually give you that data. What did you recognize versus what do others recognize? And we get you to reflect. It's just more of a reflection, not a judgment, because um, we want to create a safer space as possible to make, uh, to have these learnings and have this reflection. And at the end, we also track where you're looking so you can sort of see things that you might have noticed in a normal social interaction. For example, oh, I wasn't looking at uh, the woman in that scenario, you know, or I was looking at, uh, even though they were talking most of the time, you know, things like this. So it's in some sense, it's a very, very deep read. Now, Chris, one of the classic problems in virtual reality is representing the body, representing people with any degree of fidelity that people can feel sympathy and empathy with. So how do you actually work that? If I'm going to look into the mirror and see myself as someone else or see myself through someone else's eyes, how do you make that so that I can actually take that on? How does that work? The... All of the avatars that we currently have um, are all photogrammetry scans that have been done from people who are close to the team. Okay, so photogrammetry being a, a technique of being able to take many different photographs from many different angles of a person, feeding that to a supercomputer and producing a 3D model as if you'd actually scanned that person in 3D. Absolutely, okay. yes. So it's based, we take uh, hundreds of photos uh, all around the face um, with different expressions, and then we feed that into the computer, as you said, and it comes out with a very high-quality 3D mesh and, a, and an avatar that we can then replicate into all of our scenarios. When we do our creative design and our scripting and we record all of our audio um, in a room just like this, that then is fed into the avatar. And then we look at the animation side so that it looks like the person or the avatar is really speaking. That whole process is is 
highly technical, but it is absolutely vital because we are looking at faces every single day in every interaction that we have. So you can tell very quickly if something's off. Well, you say it's technical, but in fact, the interesting thing is, is that's that meeting point between technology and biology, right? That we're wired to understand when a face looks correct or when it doesn't. And it's the uncanny valley. We all know this. Absolutely. You know, I advise listeners to go uh, watch the, um, uh, whatchamacallit, express the... Um, Polar Express. Polar, Polar Express, yes. the Robert Zemeckis film, which was all done with motion capture and which is pervaded by this feeling of uncanniness because it's just not quite right. And we want you need to avoid that because otherwise people immediately pop out. They don't see themselves, right? Absolutely. There is, and I cannot at, at this point give enough credit to Annie, um, Annie Drake, who is the other co-founder and CEO of Equal Reality, the work that she does blending the technical and the artistic is just amazing. And the characters and the fidelity of characters that we have and that we are continuing to develop um, is outstanding. And I haven't seen anything in any other virtual reality experience that comes close. Okay, so we now I, I know what you're doing. How does this work as a product? How do you come in and actually then offer this as a product or a service to a customer? That's a great question. So we typically work with clients to customize, you know, these scenarios. We use this framework of embodiment, mirror, then scenario, which is just a common social interaction, uh, and then data reflection. So we essentially retrofit that to specifically the story that they want to tell based off maybe incidences, other research uh, topics and themes they care about. And uh, we come out essentially with a new application where they can run it or integrate it into their workshops uh, and we've got a lot of learning over the past couple of year, two and a half years where we are now sort of uh, finding ourselves as consultants for learning and development and using new technologies to make this better so learning better and do you find customers ask for the same thing or are they all asking for different things a lot of the time it's variations on a theme so every workplace is unique in the sense of the the dynamics, the dynamics yeah. absolutely. Um, the mix of backgrounds, the mix of uh, specific cultures in the organisation and the, and the society that that organisation lives in. Um, we're finding a lot of the cultures around the US market are very different to what we're seeing here in Sydney. Um, and that, fortunately, I mean, for us, the ability to create custom scenarios in that sense that are all variations on the themes of what our technology can deliver um, are able to be iterated on and developed um, specifically for workplaces so that it does have an authentic feel. And we've seen that with some of the the implementations that we've had where people have come out and been out of the experience and said, oh, that looked just like the office that I work in. And it's like, yeah, well, that's because we modelled it off off your workplace. We, we went in there and we took photos and we've recreated this environment. And they came out and they thought, yeah, that that felt so real. It, it felt like that was my office and I was seeing that and I was in there, um, which is great, especially when the issues are invisible to those people who are potentially in senior management roles who haven't experienced the discrimination or the harassment in that personally. So then allowing them to walk a mile in those shoes allows them to be aware of it and then see it 
and realise the effect that it's having on their staff. So it really is at that level the idea of the empathy engine, right, that it, it, it can produce empathy. But there's a whole bunch of, I guess, mechanics behind it, not just the technique of capture, but there's when you've finished your work, what do you do? Do you bring them a full virtual reality system and set it up and then let them go through it? How does that act? Because this is the area in virtual reality that is proving the sort of the hard bit is that you can't just sort of ship them an app or ship them a file. You actually have to go with all of the gear. How does this work? Yeah, that's a that's also a great question. So when I mentioned that we find ourselves consultants in learning and development, we're also consultants in virtual reality and how they integrate that. And that is a lot of different things. So that's what one of the biggest challenges we have is uh, getting our uh, partners to understand the real inherent value of six degrees of freedom. So positional tracking. So when you move in the virtual world, you move exactly the same in the, the real world. Uh, and these things are important for particularly what we do, perspective taking. So all these elements of how do we use what, what hardware do we use? Um, where does it lie? Uh, is it in the company itself already? Is it was it with us? Uh, is it with a partner? These are all things that we consult on. So it's not one thing or another. It's a customized solution depending on really the available resources and what works best. So, but does but does that still mean that at some point you are having to set up for them all of the kit associated with VR, or does that mean that they're going to have the kit and you're going to come in and install it on their kit, or is it some combination? It's a combination. So typically we would initially maybe help with the installation of the setup and maybe that'd be a small investment. But often we're working with large organizations that have innovation teams, that have virtual reality labs. They still require some sort of level of uh, consultation around how to best utilize that, but uh, it's a mix. And ideally... Uh, Is that hard for you dealing yeah. with the mix? Because you know clients are going to be coming to you with all sorts of different levels of capacity, capability, and preparedness. They know they want this, mm. but they, they may not have anything to go with on that. We do. It is it is a challenge, certainly, um, for the larger organisations. We we do train the trainer sessions that we will record and then show. We have a lot of videos and a lot of content that we use to try to train up the people who are not um, experts. Expert. Well, yeah, right. or, or at least um, overly aware of virtual reality, um, or in some cases, technology. Um, or, this kind of technology. Um, so we'll work with those larger organizations. They'll purchase their own hardware and we'll help them set it up and run it and train them so that they can provide a quality of experience using our training as if we were in the room with them. And that's great for the organizations that have teams and uh, budgets <laughs> and can purchase a lot of uh, hardware. Um, and then along with that, that they can afford the, the, the customized price of creating their own customized content. Okay. So you're starting to talk prices now and this actually brings up, so what is the business model? Is this a service bureau sort of business model that we're building here or is it more of a SaaS business model or is it somewhere in between? So it started off as a service model. It really allowed us to understand the problems the clients are facing and recently we've just well, because we had such a large library of existing content, some customized for clients and some that was just generally publicly available, we decided to package it up because one of the goals we had was to make this as accessible as possible. So what I mean by this is perspective taking with virtual reality as accessible as possible. So we made a library and we've 
done a really low cost subscription so that organizations can test and if they want to do some sort of uh, greater level of engagement at a later stage, which is like customization, they can. So one of the problems in a small company mm. is managing the fact that you're both doing this custom, the service bureau work for clients and that you now have subscribers that you're going to need to support. Have you started to understand sort of where your settings are as as a startup around that? Um, yes, it's it's a very interesting question. It's, um, we launched the, the library as very much, as Rick mentioned, a way to make virtual reality accessible to organizations and also to trainers to be able to integrate into their own systems and their own workshops to be able to offer a better suite of products to their customers. Um, the long term for us, it's, I mean, we love that model. We love the thought that we can really create great content for everyone to consume. Um, but at the moment, a lot of our, our revenue is derived from uh, the custom work that we do and the client work that we do. I don't think that will ever go away as such because the clients that we're building for, that custom experiences are driving the technology in a way that when they want something that we don't have, then that's great. That's a great opportunity for us to then build that technology and integrate into our systems and make the products better that we can offer then um, to the market as a... On your point of support, um, we are noticing a big sort of increase in support with making content more accessible, having more clients in general, servicing a market that we couldn't service before is bringing in a lot more requests for help. Um, and it's unavoidable. It's a great learning for us, and we've got to adjust necessarily. And, and it brings us full circle because we're right now back to thinking about scale, which is that there's multiple ways of scaling all of this. Chris, Rick, thank you so much for joining us on This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Pleasure. Twister would like to welcome new sponsor, Launch Sydney. Launch Festival is one of the greatest tech startup conferences in Silicon Valley. In 2018, they hosted their first ever overseas conference in Sydney and brought 10 tech leaders and investors to present on various topics ranging from fundraising to scaling your startup, finding product market fit, and more. In June 2019, they'll be back to host their second Launch Festival in Sydney. They're giving away the first 1,000 tickets for free to founders. Apply for your pass here before they're gone at launchfestivalsydney.com slash founderspass. I do a lot of consulting with various museums who are doing VR installations. And one of the problems they have is that you generally need to have one docent, so that's one person, working with every person that you have in virtual reality because they can't see around them, they want to make sure that person is safe, they're having the correct experience. And so for a museum to do VR, and there's a lot of interesting art that's happening in VR these days, so museums have an interest in it, 
they're finding it to be very expensive, that VR doesn't scale, and they want to be able to do things at scale. They want to be able to show things to hundreds or thousands of people over the course of a day, and in fact, they can maybe get tens of people in. And this is the problem with virtual reality, that it's such an intimate, intense, close technology that even though it's cheap now, it's not scaling, and it hasn't scaled. It's slowed adoption. And there are a lot of people who are wondering whether VR is going to fail this time around as it did back in the 90s because of that slow scale of adoption. It's more that what we're learning is how to use the medium where to use the medium, when to use the medium, and why to use it. And I think you can hear from all of the founders that we spoke to today that there are a growing number of reasons why we use it. Justin Liang is using it to visualize buildings, but more than that, to take the workflow and make that workflow much more efficient by improving the communication skills using visualization. Chris and Rick at Equal Reality are using VR very differently. They're using it more cinematically. They're telling stories, but those stories then inform people. They become the touch points of reflection on their own actions. And so we have this actual form of not so much changing workflow, but changing behavior by giving people a window onto themselves. And these are scalable in the sense that they're producing changes that people will see, people will adopt, that we'll catch, that we'll become part of the way we think of using virtual reality, and they'll grow. I think VR is probably going to be the long, slow burn of technologies. When you compare it to, say, something like a smartphone or probably something like augmented reality, which is just coming down the pike, virtual reality will still be around. It will still be part of the landscape. It will be a slow burn. But people will always know exactly what it's good for. Big thanks to Twista sponsors Pitney Bowes and Launch Sydney. Their support makes our podcast possible. Thanks to the studio at Wynyard Green for providing the amazing facility where we record this week in Startups Australia. It's the place for creative tech. Find out more at thestudio.org.au. Thanks to Jason Leung, Rick Martin, and Chris Moran for taking the time to come on our show. Last year, we rebuilt and relaunched our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, it's got all the interviews, it's got all the photos, it's got all the links and all the stories. So check it out at twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back next week, following the journey of a brand new startup led by two outstanding and young entrepreneurs as they learn, grow, pivot, learn, grow, and pivot again. It's a great examination of the entrepreneur's journey, and you won't want to miss it. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.